What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, markets are coming off their worst week of 2023. High inflation keeps getting us down. Investor Peter Krause with why it's happening and how we'll recover. I think the market continues to underestimate the strength of the Fed's conviction to fight inflation. Yachts, jets, and villas, oh my. The Russian oligarchy's wealth spread around the world in limbo or missing. We're in the wake of a $500 million yacht. That's a big one. That looked like uh, the love boat. Those stories, box office booms and busts, plus Warren Buffett's latest letter. And the Oracle of Omaha's not holding back on buybacks or on fiscal debt. Question is, if you actually go back and look at buybacks on the whole, are they good or bad? You could actually argue from the studies that they're actually bad. It's Monday, February 27th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Everybody get your ties ready. Jackets suited up here. Right down the center. I want the jacket. You right know I'm, she's got the jacket today. I got the jacket today. today. You guys are jealous. You can't. I even jealous. Mike Pence didn't even I, wear a jacket. I know. Even I'm, he played a little. I'm jealous. I saw that. That was pretty good. It was good, yeah, wasn't it? It was. And it, it, it changes the whole dynamic. Not, you're not doing it. It's only been... 27 years, but we'll change it. Come on, Andrew. Come on. It, it actually, the jacket should be reserved for special occasions. And when you go out and every do it, excuse it does you get, you good. wear it. Every excuse no, you but, get. And you guys on. both do it when I don't you're like out it. in Washington or in other places. I, you wear it a jacket changes it me. Good. Changes. I think it's for, for you, it, it changes you. I think it changes me for the worse. For the worse. It for does. The worse. The to jacket. have a jacket? Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, to go without a jacket. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Definitely looks wise. It's not. I'll tell you what, just to make you guys feel better, I won't wear one tomorrow. Okay, thanks. That's fair. I almost never do. Berkshire Hathaway released its annual report over the weekend, as well as Chairman and CEO Warren Buffett's letter to shareholders. Berkshire reported a loss of $22.8 billion for the year. The company, though, was impacted by $67.9 billion in investment and contract derivative losses that accounting rules require. These are numbers that uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have said for a long time you shouldn't pay too much attention to, just in terms of the swings, the profits and losses. They've said that when it benefited them and they saw a bigger than expected profit, too. It's because they own so many different stocks, and those stocks, when they drop in value as the market, uh, which was down 18 percent last year, when those things dropped in value, that affects it. Revenue was actually up 9.4 percent to $302.1 billion, and operating earnings for the year rose to a record $30.8 billion. Berkshire Hathaway is the biggest shareholder now in eight S&P 500 companies. That includes American Express, Bank of America, Chevron, Coca-Cola, Hewlett-Packard, Moody's, Occidental Petroleum, and Paramount Global. In his annual letter to shareholders, Warren Buffett pushed back on criticism of share buybacks. He said, 
When you're told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country, or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are either listening to an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue. Those are characters that are not mutually exclusive. So that was probably his most um, political step that he made on any of these things. Just in terms of keeping the large conglomerate together, even after he's no longer running it, the 92-year-old Buffett said, at Berkshire, there will be no finish line. Buffett also said that Berkshire will always have what he said, a boatload of cash in U.S. Treasury bills, along with a wide array of businesses. Its cash pile, by the way, stood at nearly $130 billion at the end of 2022. And on the brewing fight over fiscal overspending by the federal government, Buffett wrote that Berkshire offers some modest protection from runaway inflation, but this attribute is far from perfect. Huge and entrenched fiscal deficits have consequences. We feel we may be living through some of it right now, you would think. I don't understand the silver tongue part. I think the demagogues that the demagogue, I think they sound like economic illiterates. I don't think they're silver tongued at all. It was weird. I thought it was it's, odd it's, that it's he put populist, that in there. It's a populist argument. Right, but, but silver tongued implies that, they, that they're like a, like a siren song. Like we're all sort of, oh my God, it's beautiful what they're saying about it. That's not, I hear him saying it's a lot of people But I think you're in the minority. I think you're in the minority. I think populism, the reason silver. Why silver tongued? Uh, because it's something that sounds good to people who are maybe not as right. So that's what they mean. So they they're not. It's not a comment on whether they're they're right. No. Oh no, not right. But whether they're just really. Uh, oh, smooth speaking. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I see your point. Yeah. But I, I but I think, for a lot of people, when they say those things, it plays. It, you know, that's no. That's it why definitely they say does. It. it definitely does. It corporate. You know, they say the only reason they do it is that, at this point, they got people convinced that. I don't even want to go into it, but they got people convinced that all CEOs get paid by the stocks went up and that the minute you announce a buyback, the stock goes up and then your compensation goes up. And that's what everyone has it tied to at this point. And basically, there's a lot of reasons you might do buybacks. And you can't always just keep, you know, hire more people or spend it here or do this. It, it, you know, people, that's why you have boards and CEOs to decide how to best deploy shareholder capital. And, and by the way, he's not saying all share buybacks are good. If you pay too much for it, it's a bad well, situation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, right. you're paying, if you're paying for an overpriced right. stock, it's not so, a good Right, idea. and that's to me the one piece of this, which is if you look at enough studies, yeah, here's, he, it's a little bit like mergers, which is that, you know, 50% of mergers are failures. Right. Right? And so... we got to demerge those. <laughs> but the question is, if you actually go back and look at buybacks on the whole, right. are they good or bad? You could actually argue by, from the studies that they're actually bad insofar as they're actually value destructive, not value creative. Because, because, they're only value creative right. when a company is actually doing something. So then the question becomes, if you had this cash lying around, would you be better off buying back your stock if 50% of the time you're failing? And, and I think we should get better stats than that. But, you know, if the, the odds are it's not going to work, would you be better off investing in something else or, or whatever? Dividends or dividends instead of buybacks. Right. But just because CEOs are no better than anyone else at predicting the future, especially of their stock market. We know about insider selling and buying. They're usually not very smart about that either. You can use it to see what they're doing, but long term, they don't know any better. Probably. Oh, that's you, not true. You think if they're you good look, at that? Oh, no. If you look at the studies... That's because they insider, do know... Tra insider, insider trading, the legal, the legal version, version of it. The legal version. You think um, it's, oh, pre it's predictive? Oh, by a mile. I think every academic study I've ever seen on insider trading... They, it, I mean, they, sell, at trading, the, they sell at the right time. They, they are very good at selling at the right time. Well, then they ought to be able to buy, right buy back at the right time. Right. I mean, we should actually have somebody on to talk about I don't about know. This. We should go look. I haven't looked at the numbers in a long time. But I do know when you look at selling, the accuracy on the selling 
on the whole, is way well, better than, that, that than might make the sense, average investor. Their CFO comes in and says, man, maybe that's why. I, we, we actually should do right. a study and we take a look, look at some of these things. And there, by the way, Buffett is not we'll, defending yeah. all share buybacks. He's just saying anybody who says that all of them are bad right. is wrong. Um, by the way, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting is coming up once again, just a couple months away. You can watch a live stream of the meeting exclusively on CNBC.com and on air right here on CNBC. That's on Saturday, May 6th. Shareholders, by the way, can send in their questions for Warren Buffett and the leadership of Berkshire Hathaway to BerkshireQuestions at CNBC.com. Developing over the weekend, uh, news publications, including the L.A. Times, Washington Post, USA Today, said they would no longer publish work by Dilbert creator Scott Adams last week on his YouTube show. Adams was discussing a uh, Rasmussen poll in which 26% of black respondents disagreed with the statement that it's okay to be white. Adams said he personally uh, chose to live in a community uh, where few or no black people lived and then advised his white viewers to, in his words, get the hell away from black people. Elon Musk waded into the controversy, responding to a Twitter comment on the news by saying the media is racist. Musk then tweeted, uh, for a very long time, U.S. media was racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against whites and Asians. Same thing happened with elite colleges and high schools in America. Maybe they can try not being racist. It's a business story because he writes all about Dilbert was, was one of our favorite. He was a lot, he was able to look out. at a. Yeah. There were some really funny. We had him come in here, if you remember, many, yeah. many, many years ago. He has a unique and perceptive view of middle management. That is very true. Which we live every day here with the Dilbert in the Dilbert world. Yeah, I, I, at first I thought this is this was a little twisted, but then I read what he actually said with some of these things, and I was like, whoa. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get it. Let's talk about uh, the film box office these days. Uh, Cocaine Bear, Blue Pass projections, bringing in $23 million in its opening weekend, Universal movie, inspired by the true story of the drug runner's plane crash and follows the residents of a small town who try to escape a bear that ingests a duffel bag of cocaine. Universal is owned by our parent company, Comcast. Meantime, Disney's a third Ant-Man movie suffered the biggest week-to-week drop in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, falling from a debut weekend haul of $106 million to now just $32 million. This past weekend, still the movie generated $364 million globally, but does raise some questions for the likes of the AMCs of the world in terms of just how much, uh, you know, we had these sort of tentpole films that, did, you know, Avatar that did fabulously, yeah. got people back in. But then we've had these sort of lull periods. And for AMC and anybody in the cinema world, the exhibitors to work, you can't really have the lull periods. And whether the, I mean, this goes back to have we transitioned to watching more stuff on streaming and that's how people, and so. Have we changed our behavior? Right, so the diehards go see Ant-Man first week. Some people go the second week, and a lot of other people say, oh, I'll watch it. It's going to be on streaming in three months. Well, I'll just do that. Look, part of it is the window has shortened. Right. Like, that's something that happened during right. COVID, where they shortened the theatrical release window so that you would get it more quickly on some of these other right. options. And that was a huge, big back and forth. Battle. And so that's the, but has that changed behavior? So, the, right, you go see Ant-Man if you love Ant-Man, or you say, I'll wait three months, watch it later. I don't know. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, 
recovering from 2023's worst week for the markets so far and gearing up for the long road ahead. The Fed's next move, the market's disbelief, and inflation's lifespan with investor Peter Kraus. It takes not months, but years for inflation to actually resolve itself. So it's really unlikely that the Fed is going to reduce interest rates within the next 18 months. And I don't think the market's fully digested that. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Last week, the U.S. markets had their worst week of 2023 so far. The Dow was down 3%, its fourth down week in a row. The S&P 500 lost almost as much. And the Nasdaq was the worst of the bunch, ending the week down 3.3%. Before that, things looked good in an early 2023 rally. But on Friday, the Commerce Department released its latest Personal Consumption Expenditures, or PCE, price index. And it was hot, hotter than expected, up six-tenths of a percent for the month, up 4.7% from this time last year. The PCE is the Federal Reserve's preferred gauge of inflation, and a high PCE number means the Fed's likely to keep raising interest rates. This week, investors await retail earnings. Target, Costco, Lowe's, and others all report this week. Those offer another indicator of our economy's health in the sentiment and the wallets of the American consumer. This morning, to digest the bumpy week that was, we invited investor Peter Kraus to set. He's currently the CEO of Aperture Investors. From 2008 to 2017, he was the CEO of Alliance Bernstein. Here's Becky kicking off that conversation. Peter, it's good to see you. Good to have you in person here. When it comes to a soft landing, you are a bit skeptical. You don't think it's really that easy of a landing. Yeah, I don't think soft landings are highly probabilistic. Can it happen? Of course. But I think the market continues to underestimate the strength of the Fed's conviction to fight inflation. And inflation doesn't come down that quickly. And if we go back and look at time periods of inflation, it takes not months, but years for inflation to actually resolve itself. So it's really unlikely that the Fed is going to reduce interest rates within the next 18 months. And I don't think the market's fully digested that. And that's why you see the volatility of rates being as high as they are and why you see the market trying to get ahead but not being able to maintain that momentum. But, you know, we also have an unemployment rate today that's 3.4%. That's remarkably low. And if we have that much employment in the country, it's very hard to have a recession. 
So there's some real chance that you can have a modest recession or a real growth slowdown, and that that's what the Fed is trying to engineer. Meaning it's going to be painful, but not for everyone? No, I think what, I think what, it, what this is going to be, what's going to be different here than what we've seen in the last 20 years is this is going to be a more extended cycle. You know, in 08, the world fell apart, but within nine months, it sort of came back. And in 20, it was a three-month, you know, kind of decrease and then recovery. This is likely to be a much longer cycle because you've got to beat inflation, and that takes time. And that means the Fed is going to have tightening financial conditions for a while, and that's going to reallocate capital. You're going to see levered companies try to refinance. That's going to be challenging. We'll see defaults. We haven't been through a cycle like that that's gone over 18 months or a reasonable time period for a while. So what do you do as an investor in that environment? Well, I think, you know, look, I've always, whenever you answer that question, I always sort of answer from a longer term point of view because trading is not really investing. So, you know, the idea that you shouldn't buy equities here because they're expensive or because they might go down really doesn't make any sense. At the end of the day, it's a reasonable entry point to own the market right now. It's below 4,000. Over the next two years, the market's going to be higher for sure. And it'll probably earn more than the fixed income markets will. We're below 4,000, but just barely with the gains yeah. from today. You're going to put, put yourself there. I mean, is 4,000 a, a, a turning point for you? Is it that important to be above or below? Or are you no. just saying in general? No, just in general. Yeah, in general. In general. And I think the point was made earlier about the consumer stocks and the industrial base, which had underperformed last year, which is now performing better. Utilities and uh, intersensitive securities like REITs are, you know, are having real challenges. So there are places to actually put money in the market that have reasonable returns, reasonable multiples. Are multiples going to expand like we saw in the last two years? No. Because interest rates are going to stay high. Are they They're going not to going to let those multiples from go. Here? I mean, that's no, the big question. Because they, right? they shrunk pretty dramatically already. So no, you're not going to see a lot, of exp a lot of shrinkage. So that means that stocks go up because earnings go up. And that's what we'd like to see well, as opposed to multiple I mean, expansion. maybe not normal for the last 20 years, but that's, that's normal exactly right. pre-20 years ago. Yeah, pre-20 years ago, you bought stocks because their earnings grew. You didn't buy stocks because their multiple was going to go up. That was an extra. You didn't buy stocks at high multiples expecting the earnings to shrink. Or excuse me, the multiples to shrink. So here... We're in that market where earnings are going to matter, and then differentiating between stocks will make sense. Right. So that, yeah, that's where I was getting, because if, I mean, our deficit, our debt isn't going down. So we're, we're going to have a lot of debt service with higher rates, which means GDP is going to be, whether it's a hard landing or soft landing, it's going to be permanently probably dampened by all our interest expense. So you better buy the right companies because the economy is not going to give you that tailwind just by growing at 3 or 4% a year. And, and, and interest rates are not going to give you that tailwind either right. because we've lived for a long time, you know, 15 years with very low interest rates, unusually low interest rates. And we've all seen the charts over the last 30 or 40 years of interest rates going from the 80s, you know, down to where they finally got to. That's not going to happen again. That's done. That's finished. What do you think about the yields you see right now? We're looking at the two-year at 4.8%. Plus. Well, we have an inverted yield curve because we're trying to fight inflation, so that's not so surprising. What's a little surprising is the 10 years, not really at 4%. So if you're looking at real interest rates, you still have negative real interest rates. And that has got to resolve itself. We have to have positive interest rates, positive real rates. So if you have a positive real rate of 1.5% and you have inflation right. between 2 and 3, you can do the math. Can I just ask one Peter, one question goes back to the Buffett thing. Sure. Would you prefer to get dividends or buy or buyback? 
If you had, if you had a choice. <laughs> buybacks. Buybacks, buybacks win over dividends tax, for, for tax, tax purposes? Yeah, I think, look, <laughs> there's a thing about dilution that maybe is worth talking about. If, if you have stock out there and you continue to put stock out there through compensation, you have effectively permanent dilution. Right. And that's always a headwind. So if you're buying stock back, you're resolving that dilution. And that's, I think, a more effective way of dealing with the capital allocation. Dividends right. are not very flexible. If you increase your dividends, right. you're not going to reduce But does it mean that the compensation scheme that we've all created in this country has actually been a lot more expensive than we thought? But that's a result of the tax incentives. Right. Though. I mean, the reason that, that you're partly that, is- but you, good question that Andrew's asking, yes. Uh, in fact, for a long time, you know, stock options were not actually reflected in accounting statements. Right. Then that changed. You know, the tech world used that dramatically. Of course. And that changed. So, yes, the answer is, is that we don't necessarily calculate compensation effectively. And, in fact, stock-based compensation is real compensation and it should right. be. But not only is it real compensation, it's actually more expensive compensation because then you have to buy back stock to prevent the dilution piece. Well, yes, but you could say to the, the, the employee would demand higher cash comp. Right if they weren't getting stock because stock has an upside. Potentially. No, I mean, that, that, right, that's, that is the question. But and then there's the skin in the game argument. There's lots of- But it's good to just put some meat on the bones for the silver-tongued demagogues that never consider dilution or never consider what's actually going on with the capital structure of a company. They all, Elizabeth Warren just says, you're buying back stock to juice your compensation. That's the only reason, and, and that's, not, that's either illiterate or demagoguery, one tongue. or the other. Let me see your tongue. Or, or it could be both. Stick it out. His tongue is definitely not it's silver. silver. It's not I've silver. Seen that. You don't it's think that's silver? It's coated. No. It's coated. No. It's, it's coated. It's, it's coated. mossy. Here, thank you. It's, it's coated. Yeah. Oh. Fungusy. Oh, stop. Up next on Squawk Pod, where in the world are the Russian elite, and where's all their wealth? CNBC's Robert Frank on the yachts, the jets, and the global politics. A 115-foot yacht seized from an oligarch and held in Croatia has escaped from authorities and is now missing. So these oligarchs, very good at hiding their stuff. That's all right after this break. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. The U.S. and European governments made big announcements well, when they seized dozens of yachts, villas, and private jets of the Russian oligarchs and promised to send the sales proceeds to Ukraine. But the seizures of these assets have turned out to be a big uh, legal problem. And Robert Frank joins us now with more. I'm still waiting to get my, uh, no, I don't. They, I, they don't have anything of mine, Robert. Good, Joe, and they probably won't. But remember last year, President Biden announced that they would, quote, identify, hunt down, and freeze the assets of the oligarchs. The Justice Department has since frozen about a billion dollars in total assets. The problem now 
is what to do with all of them. The government can't take possession or sell an asset until it's gone through forfeiture. That's a process where they have to prove in court that the assets are illegal proceeds. That could take months or even years. The DOJ announced Friday the beginning of a forfeiture process for luxury real estate belonging to the oligarch Victor, Victor Vexelberg. The homes in Miami Beach, the Hamptons, and Manhattan are valued at over $75 million. But most of the yachts that have been seized around the world are still floating in legal limbo. Amadea, that's a $500 million yacht that was owned by billionaire oligarch Suleiman Karimov that was raided in Fiji last year. The DOJ sailed it to San Diego, where it is still sitting in the port of San Diego. The U.S. government, meanwhile, i.e. taxpayers, are paying the crew and the docking fees, so they won't say how much they're actually paying. The U.S. has not begun the forfeiture process, so they can't sell it or transfer ownership. Meanwhile, a 115-foot yacht seized from an oligarch and held in Croatia has escaped from authorities and is now missing. Joe, so these oligarchs, very good at hiding their stuff. How much is, uh, so the crew's still there. That's kind of interesting. You, you got any numbers about what something like that? That's a big one. That looked like uh, the love boat. So, so typically a yacht costs about 10% of its total cost to maintain every year. That's about a $500 million yacht. So it could be typically $50 million a year to maintain. That's if it's sailing. If it's just sitting there with a minimal crew, it is still minimum hundreds of thousands of dollars a month just to keep that maintained, cleaned, not getting damaged hey, by Robert, the seawater. Asking for a friend, um, what's the depreciation yes. on a $500 million yacht? So it, it comes out of the, the, the dealership, if you will, uh, at $500 yeah. million. Does it, it, it doesn't go up typically, I don't think. It usually goes down, but how much down does it go and how fast? Well. Andrew, it's a great question. In the past, prior to the pandemic, you would see, you know, depending on the build quality and the maintenance, typically about a 20 to 30 percent depreciation over a period of, let's say, five plus years. But over the past few years, yachts have actually traded for more than people paid for them because there's such huge and overwhelming demand for yachts. And if you order a mega yacht today, you're not going to get it for at least three to five years. So the premium on, on boats that are sitting in the water has been higher. They have appreciated since people bought them. That may change in the next few years, especially if some of these oligarch boats come on the market and there's more supply. Hmm. Seems like it would also be a function of a lot so, of liquidity. Good opportunity, Andrew. People looking for wait. things to, yeah. Robert, it, 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 is it like art? Is it, does it follow the markets kind of up and down valuation? It, it's not just the stock market. It typically fo follows global wealth creation. And, you know, during the pandemic, we saw massive wealth creation. So unprecedented demand for boats, cars, everything expensive. Um, and again, no sign yet that that's slowing, but we expect it probably would just because it was unsustainable. Robert, thank you. That does it for the podcast today. Thank you for listening today and every day. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
And we are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.